on a given Sunday night, uh, most of the time, you know, they spent their time interacting with each other, uh, but every now and then they would interact with adults, and especially they would interact with teachers, and that was, that was always funny, uh, because Schultz, he didn't want the teachers, he didn't want any adults to appear uh, in the cartoon strip and later in the animated uh, shows. He didn't want the show to be about the adults or the teachers. He wanted, to be, wanted the show to be about the kids. So uh, when he had to represent an adult, uh, he came up with this really neat way to do it. He represented the teacher's voice with the sound of a trombone. Uh, so, whenever a teacher had to have a conversation with, say, uh, Charlie Brown or Peppermint Patty, uh, the conversation would go like this, wah, 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 that's what the teacher would sound like. <laughs> and then Peppermint Patty would say, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes ma'am. Uh, we, as the listener, didn't know exactly what the teacher had said, uh, but we had to glean it from the context clues. Of course, uh, Peppermint Patty or Charlie Brown or whoever, they understood what the teacher said, but we weren't privy to that information necessarily. The best we could do was, was kind of piece it together because uh, for, the re for the listener, uh, the words were not as important as, as how the kids reacted to the words because the show was about the kids and we could all relate to that too, uh, being in school ourselves and uh, listening to teachers uh, and it often sounded like the trombone, uh, I'm sure, to us as we, as we sat in those long fifth and sixth and seventh grade classes, uh, praying for it to end. Well, uh, in contrast to uh, Charlie Brown's teacher, uh, is the importance of sharing the gospel with clear words, understandable words that could be heard and that could be understood because people have to hear the gospel uh, if they're going to understand it. And they have to hear and understand it if they're going to make a decision to believe in Jesus for their salvation. So uh, for us as viewers of the Peanuts cartoon, we could be excused for not necessarily understanding uh, everything that the teacher said. Uh, but uh, Paul's point in this passage is that Israel cannot be excused for its failure to believe the gospel. Uh, they heard the message and they understood it. Uh, and now God holds unbelievers, Israel and all unbelievers, accountable for their unbelief. And since it's been a little while since we've been in uh, Romans, I just want to take a step back and just remind us that uh, when we talked about Romans chapter 9, it was about God's sovereignty and election. That's what Romans chapter 9 is about. Uh, God chooses who are his, and God didn't break any promises to anybody by not all Israel being elect, because God never said all Israel was elect. He said that uh, the, the uh, faithful uh, in the line of Abraham are God's elect. Only the true Israel is Israel. And so it, it doesn't depend on heritage. It doesn't depend on works uh, because God chose Jacob over Esau before the twins were even born or had done anything good or bad. And so uh, God is not unfair to choose some over others. He, he does elect some uh, and others. He allows to just continue on this path that they have chosen for themselves uh, toward destruction. Uh, and so he is the potter. We are the clay. He has the right to do with us uh, as we want. He is not unjust to show mercy on some uh, while not showing mercy on others. But even though God elects, God chooses who are his, uh, he still holds unbelievers accountable for their unbelief. And that's Romans chapter 10, human responsibility in salvation. So people must believe. And the problem with the Jews is that they wouldn't believe in Jesus. They were trying to establish their own righteousness, uh, a self-righteousness based on works and performance rather than relying on Jesus's 
righteousness. And they rejected faith because they refused uh, to confess that Jesus is Lord and God. And so uh, what we saw last week or last time we were together in verses 14 and 15, that Paul asked a a series of rhetorical questions that were meant to show uh, this uh, link, uh, this chain, as it were, of of salvation uh, that people needed to hear the gospel in order to believe it. So here's what we said last time. Uh, How then are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Uh, So there has to be a message of truth. There has to be a message who delivers this message of truth. There has to be an audience with ears to hear. Uh, They have to believe, they have to exercise faith, and they have to call on the name of the Lord. And Paul's argument now against these Jews is that uh, there was a message Uh, There was a messenger. Uh, It all broke down with the Jews who heard the message. Uh, The problem was not that there wasn't a message or messenger, but there was a lack of belief. And so uh, Paul proved in this passage first that that Israel's belief was predicted in verses 16 and 17. Uh, And then that Israel's belief was was not because they didn't hear or understand. Uh, We see Paul answer uh, both of these objections in verses 18 uh, through 20. Uh, And then the only option left is what he talks about in verse 21, uh, that Israel's uh, disbelief is simply because of willful disobedience. Uh, So verses 16 and 17, we see Israel's belief was predicted. It's predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, This is what it says in verses 16 and 17. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So this verse 16, uh, uh, Paul actually borrowed this verse uh, from Isaiah chapter 53. And you know Isaiah 53. It's the, it's the, the, the chapter about the suffering servant, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, and he, uh, Isaiah prophesied about, uh, about the Messiah, not only that he would come, but that Israel would not believe in him when he did come. And throughout that chapter, he detailed how Israel would reject the Messiah, and also how he would kill him, uh, how they would kill him, even though uh, Jesus took up our iniquities on himself so that by his stripes we could be healed. Now, Isaiah preached this message 650 years or so before uh, Jesus came, uh, and then Jesus did come. And in Luke chapter 4, he, he proclaimed himself to be the fulfillment of what Isaiah spoke. He said, uh, standing up in the synagogue to read from the scroll of Isaiah, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Luke chapter 4, because uh, he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he sat down and he said, today, this scripture, Isaiah's prophecy, all those hundreds of years earlier has been fulfilled in your hearing. And and so Jesus claimed to be their Messiah and they rejected him. And Jesus willingly went to the cross uh, and still God held his murderers accountable. Now, that was Jesus. After Jesus, in the book of Acts, we start to read about people proclaiming the name of the Lord, such as Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when the Jews 
rejected him and killed him while he was professing the name of the Lord. And Paul was right there uh, holding the garments of the people who were about to stone him, uh, approving, giving, giving uh, Stephen the thumbs down when it came to whether he should live or die. Uh, so Paul was right there the entire time. And then Paul himself met the risen Jesus Christ uh, on the road to Damascus, and he became a believer. And what did they do with him? They rejected him and tried to kill him numerous times, stoning him, beating him, leaving him for dead. Uh, so Israel's unbelief was predicted in Isaiah and Old Testament, other Old Testament passages. It was fulfilled in Jesus' day. It was fulfilled in Paul's day, and it continues to be fulfilled today. Uh, in Israel, uh, a secular society, as you know, that still rejects her Messiah. Uh, but it's being rejected around the world, too, not just by Israel. Well, Paul quoted Isaiah here because this, this link in the chain of faith is an indispensable, an essential uh, quality that has to happen uh, for people to uh, ever be saved. You need a message, a messenger, an audience uh, you need faith. You need to call on the name of the Lord. And for Israel, it broke down at belief. Verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so Israel had to hear the word of the Lord to be saved. They had to hear it. So Paul explored then this possibility that Israel hadn't heard the word in verse 18. Is it possible that Israel did not hear the word? 1018. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? It's a rhetorical question, almost a sarcastic question. On the contrary, their voice has gone out into all the world and their words to the end of the world. So what Paul is doing here is just quoting extensively from the Old Testament to prove that the Jews had no excuse. They had their Hebrew scriptures. They had their, their Hebrew Bible. Uh, it was, the, the Messiah was proclaimed throughout it, and yet when he came, they still rejected him. So of course they heard the word. Uh, Paul took this verse 18. Uh, it's a, a loose quote based on Psalm 19. Uh, which is interesting because Psalm 19 is about natural revelation, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. So it's about what we can see about God from looking around, looking up at the starry sky, looking at the ocean, whatever it happens to be. But Paul takes that quote and now applies it to what they knew about God from special revelation, uh, what they were told by the prophets, what Jesus himself said about himself, and then what his uh, apostles said about him afterward. And they rejected all of that. Uh, they rejected that special revelation. So in Romans 18, uh, Paul's argument is that they, they didn't kill him because they didn't hear. They actually killed him because they did hear, and they didn't like what he had to say. And so well, they couldn't say, I didn't hear. That was not an excuse that was available to them. So Paul explores perhaps another option. All right, maybe they heard, but is it possible that they didn't understand? Uh, verse 19, has, has Israel not understood? Well, Paul took this verse, verse 19, right from Deuteronomy 32:21. It says, They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. So we see that uh, as we look at verse 19. You can see that it's taken right from it. Uh, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous with those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will anger you. And so Paul's point 
He's borrowing from this Deuteronomy passage. Deuteronomy is written by Moses. It's part of the law. It's written 1,500 years before Jesus comes. And in that, there is this prophecy uh, that God would make the Israelites jealous through those who are not a people. Well, that's a reference to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are not a people. God took the Israelites and he made them a people. How did he do that? He started with Abraham. And from Abraham, uh, the people uh, grew, and he gave them the law, he gave them the prophets, he gave them the patriarchs, he made them a people, and the Gentiles he did not do that for. And so this people that God had chosen and given all these advantages, they angered God. How? By turning to worthless idols, uh, by looking for things other than God. So that's what was happening in Moses' day and all throughout uh, until the exile. And then in Paul's day, they boasted uh, not in God, but how well they were able to keep the law. They boasted in their performance and in their self-righteousness. Uh, and so either way, they're turning to things other than God. Their idolatry is toward worthless statues uh, in Moses' day and to their own performance in Paul's day. And so uh, they did not uh, have great thanks for God's grace. And God said that he would make the, Israel, or the, uh, the Israelites angry by pouring his grace out on the Gentiles. And whenever uh, Paul proclaimed that message, they hated him for it. When Stephen uh, preached his long message in Acts chapter 7, uh, everything was good. Uh, they didn't stone him until he convicted the Jews uh, for what they were doing and, and uh, talking about how uh, God, uh, God would pour his grace on the Gentiles. And of course, that does make the Jews very angry that, that God would take his grace from them and pour it on the Gentiles. We see uh, lots of, of uh, anger from the Jews when they do that. Uh, when God does that, because the Jews considered the Gentiles foolish, uh, dumb barbarians. Uh, they were not God's chosen people. They were, they were outsiders to the covenant. Uh, and yet, as it turned out, the Gentiles were not the fools because they heard the message and they received it. And as God does, he flips the script and it turns out that the Jews have turned out to be fools because of their unbelief. So that's how we use this Deuteronomy passage. And then uh, he says that Isaiah was even more bold in proclaiming uh, about what the Jews had done. Uh, Paul borrowed verse 20 now, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 20, from Isaiah 65, verse 1. Uh, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. And now our verse, verse 1020, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. So the Gentiles were not looking for God. They weren't seeking God. They weren't trying to find God. They were drunken, immoral, sex-crazed pagans. That's what the Gentiles were. And the Gentiles found God anyway. So Paul's answer is clear. He asks two questions. Had they not heard? Had they not understood? And Paul says, no, it's not either one of those things. If the unbelieving heathen Gentiles who were not a people, who did not have the law, who did not have the patriarchs, who did not have the prophets, if they could understand, well, then surely Israel, with all of the privileges that they had, could hear and understand. So the problem is not that they hadn't heard. It's not that they hadn't understood. That leaves only one other possibility. 
and that is that Israel was willfully disobedient, and that's what we see in verse 21. But as for Israel, he says, all day long I have spread my hands out to a disobedient and obstinate people. And that verse is also taken from Isaiah 65, follows right on the heels of 65 verse 1, which I just quoted. Uh, now 65 2, I have spread my hands out all day long to a rebellious people. Now, if we were to take the time to open up the book of Isaiah and read uh, chapter 65, at least the first 16 verses, we would see all kinds of things that Israel was doing to anger God. Uh, they continually, uh, Isaiah says, provoked God to his face. They offered sacrifices in the gardens, not on the altars, in the gardens, and they burned incense on bricks, not where they were supposed to be burned. They sat among graves. Israel was not allowed to have contact with the dead. They ate pig's flesh. That's a prohibited animal. That's a, a filthy, unclean animal. So they were doing all kinds of things against God's law. And if we read that, we could list 20 more things that Israel was doing. Israel was a rebellious people. They were full of self-pride and righteousness from the time of Moses through Isaiah, uh, through Jesus, and to Paul. And so we have this description of God who spreads out his hands all day long. We just have this picture of God as a man uh, spreading out his arms, saying, come children, trying to gather them all day long to, an, uh, uh, to a, a stubborn and disobedient people who will not come to him. And this reminds me very much of the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son is is where the, 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 the father gives his younger son his inheritance in advance while his father is still alive, which would be scandalous. Uh, and the, the, the younger son goes off to a foreign land and he squanders all of the inheritance on loose money, uh, loose living, and uh, on all manner of sin. Uh, and after his money was gone, he worked among the Gentiles. He became a pig herder. Uh, and when he came to his senses, he finally said, I will go back to my father. I will go back to him and perhaps he'll take me back as one of his hired hands and I'll at least be better off than I am today. And his father missed him terribly. Uh, every day he would go out to the road and look in the distance and, and hope that he would see his son uh, coming in the distance. And one day he did see his son coming home and he, he hiked up his robe uh, and he ran down the road to his son. Uh, and before his son could even get out the first word of this rehearsed speech about how sorry he was, uh, the father put the signet ring on him and clothed him in the finest robe and ordered that a fattened calf be killed so that they could have this celebration. They had to celebrate that the younger son had returned home. Now, the father reached out to his son with this extravagant love, arms wide open all the time, waiting for this son to come home. And then the father went out into the field to talk to the older son and asked him, implored him to come in to celebrate the return of the younger son. And the older brother refused. He was so angry at his father because he said, uh, I have never done anything against your will. I've done everything that you ever wanted. And you've never even offered me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this worthless son of yours come home, comes home, you give him the ring and you put the, the finest robe on him and you fatten a calf and have a party in his name. And the father practically begged and said, son, we had to celebrate because this younger brother of yours has lost and now has been found. But as for you, everything I have is yours. You have always been with me and all that I have is yours. 
The father showed extravagant love to both of his sons, but the older son is representative of stubborn, obstinate Israel. Everything that the father had was theirs. He gave them the law. He gave them the prophets. He gave them the patriarchs. He gave them the covenants. Uh, and he gave them Jesus Christ and asked them to receive God's love through Jesus Christ. But like the older son, the Jews were stubborn uh, and they, they wanted righteousness based on their heritage. The older son was the, the, the son of the father. So he thought that that made everything right. And, and he thought that everything was made right by him, by his own performance. And so uh, he misunderstood and that's how God's relationship with the Jews is today uh, and back in that day, uh, trying to earn it by self-righteousness. And, and all day long, God opens his arms to receive them. And all day long, they rely on something other than God. And you know, in, in Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus said to the people uh, when he came in for the triumphal entry, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I have longed to gather you together, the same image of an open, open arms, trying to bring people in. How often I have longed to gather you uh, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. You were not willing, so it's willful disobedience. When Allie was growing up, I used to coach all of her basketball teams, which was fun a lot of times. Uh, but one year, I had this girl on our team uh, who thought that every play was, I'm going to dribble the ball across half court, and then I'm going to shoot uh, every time down the court. She thought that's what the play was. I dribble up, and then I shoot. And so I would have to call a timeout in the middle of the game, and I would have to say to her, I can't remember what her name was, but this is not the play. The play is you pass it to her, and she passes it to her, and we try to get a layup. The play is not you dribble across half court and shoot. And then we'd go back into the game, and she would dribble across half court, and she would shoot. And the next time, I would yell to her in range of the entire gym. There was no way that she and everybody else in the gym did not hear and understand that the play was not dribble across half court and shoot. The play was pass the ball and let's try to get a layup. But she would not listen to me. She was willfully disobedient. And so uh, what did I do? What could I do? I had to take her out of the game, sit her next to me, tell her again, this is not the play. The play is you share the ball, you pass the ball. We try to get a better shot than that shot. So the penalty for her, for her willful disobedience was a spot on the bench next to me, which is not where a basketball player wants to be. Uh, for Israel, the penalty is much worse. And for any unbelieving person who willfully disregards and disobeys the Lord's command, the penalty is much worse. It's eternity apart from him. Well, we've been talking throughout chapter 10 now about Israel. It's all about Israel, Israel's unbelief. And of course, it wasn't all Israel. Any believer in those days was first a Jew who became a Christian. Uh, but most of the Jews did not believe, and most of them uh, were left to the consequences of their disobedience. But what does all this talk of Israel have to do with us today? Well, it's very simple. God has called everybody to faith. He's called everyone to salvation through Jesus Christ. And uh, God has made Jews and Gentiles one in the church. And what he asks of us is belief. God offers his kingdom to anyone who will call on the name of the Lord. And so verse 21 says again, all day long I have held out my arms to a disobedient people, which shows that God is patient. He's loving, almost to the point of begging people to come and be saved. 
And so uh, the problem with first century Israel is the same problem that we have in 21st century Israel, 21st century America, 21st century all over the world. People will not believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And so God continues to hold out his hands to an obstinate and disobedient people. And the problem, of course, underlying all of this is sin. And the sin that causes unbelievers not to believe is generally pride, the kind of pride that is self-righteous, the kind of pride that thinks uh, I'm good enough in my own power. I will get to heaven because of what I have done. Uh, I am good enough because of what I have done, and I don't need God. And that kind of pride, of course, causes God's wrath. Uh, God says in Proverbs 16, 19, pride goes before a fall. And God says that he will humble the proud and he will exalt the humble. And in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus talks all about needing to have poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So being poor in spirit means that we acknowledge that there is nothing good in us. There is nothing that is worthy of salvation. It means that we recognize our own sinful condition And then we humble ourselves and say, God, I can't do this. I need you. I need a savior. And so uh, somebody who is poor in spirit understands there's nothing worthy in them of salvation. And so as soon as people start to take credit for anything that they have done, they have robbed the gospel of its power. As soon as people take credit for what they have done, try to attribute salvation to something they have done, they have robbed the gospel of its power. So how is that so? Well, it's so because when Jesus came and he died on the cross, uh, he said, it is finished. It is finished. That means Jesus did all of the work necessary for salvation when he died on the cross. How much is all? 100%. 100%. Why did Jesus have to do all of the work of salvation? Well, because he's the only one who ever lived a sinless life. And so he was the only one who was ever qualified to offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sin. And he can only do that because he's God. He can only offer himself up because he is God. No one else could hope to do it. Now, if we come along in our pride and in our arrogance and and we say, you know, I know, God, that you chose me. I know you chose me, but obviously it's because of how great I am and how wonderful I am. Uh, Well, what have we done? Well, we are equating ourselves with Jesus. We're saying that we have the power and the ability and the qualities to be able to atone for our own sin because of how great we are. We're saying that we too have lived a sinless life and that we are holy and pleasing to God. And if you know yourself, and I know myself, uh, we should know if we were really willing to do a self-examination. Uh, our lives are not holy, not in the sense that God requires them to be in order to save us. Uh, so we cannot take the position that our own good works are enough to atone for sin. We ought to be able to see how arrogant that is because we are equating ourselves with Jesus when we say that. The, the reason we need a Savior is because our sin has caused such a stain in our own lives that we can never get to heaven by our own good works. And so Jesus came to solve this problem that we have, uh, our sin problem, that because of our sin, we can never get to heaven. And he came to do what we could never do in our own power. When he died on the cross, he paid an immeasurable price uh, to purchase our souls. 
the, the physical agony of going to the cross was one thing, but then the spiritual agony of being separated from his father for the first time in all eternity uh, is unfathomable to you and me. Uh, we don't have that relationship with God. We are not God's uh, son. We're not eternal. Uh, so we can't know what that is like. Uh, so he paid such an enormous price. And then think of the price that God paid so that our sins could be forgiven. Uh, you parents know, if you have children, how hard it is to discipline your kids. None of us likes to discipline our kids. Now imagine taking your wrath and pouring all of your wrath out on your own son for something that you know that someone else did. That would be really, really hard for us to do. And yet God did that, and Jesus took that so that we could be saved. And that's why God hates pride so much. It's us taking credit for something that only God can do. And yet, as much as God hates pride, he is still a God of mercy. All day long, can you imagine? All day long, he holds his arms out to an obstinate and disobedient people. All day long, of course, means forever. He's holding out his arms to a willfully disobedient people. And that's good news for all of us. How glad are all of you that God uh, didn't say uh, all day long is now over 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Uh, if he said that, uh, you know, all day long is now over uh, 20 years ago, uh, I'd be toast. I don't know what your, uh, when you were saved, but at some point in your lives, uh, you were saved. And if God said all day long is now over before that day happened, uh, you wouldn't be saved either. And so uh, for many of us, when we first heard the gospel, it was like listening to Charlie Brown's teacher, right? We heard the trumpet sound. Uh, and for me, I heard the trumpet sound over and over and over again. And some of you who came to faith later in life have that same testimony. And then one day, the trumpet sound turned into a voice. Uh, God made us hear and understand the gospel that we had never heard and understood before. Uh, what was an undecipherable trumpet sound became the clear message of the gospel, and we finally heard it, we understood it, and we believed by God's grace, we understood that we are sinners in need of a savior. And that is the mercy of God. And we just can't help but marvel at God's love. We thank God for his patience. We thank God for his loving kindness without which none of us could be saved. And so God is not done saving souls either, is he? If he was, Jesus would have come uh, and this present age would have ended. Uh, but God is not done. He's not even done with Israel, disobedient Israel, which we'll see uh, in the next chapter. And he's not done with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, with your neighbors. God still has a plan. Uh, so what should our response be to such things? The first one is this. We ought to be thankful, right? First of all, we ought to be thankful. Sometimes we forget to thank God for his amazing grace in saving us. God has chosen each and every one of us who has been saved. He's regenerated our hearts so that we could believe. We would never believe without that on God's part. So it's all his work and it's all by grace, which leads to our second application is that we should not be proud about it. We shouldn't be prideful. God hates pride. And Christians, we're not immune to pride either. Sometimes uh, we can get to thinking, you know, I do this and I do that and I'm really, I'm really doing great at this Christian thing. Uh, God ought to be really 
quite happy to have me on his team, right? Uh, we can do that. We can get proud about the work that we have done. And so we're not better people than unbelievers. We are just people who God has given the gift of faith so that our eyes would be opened, that we would understand uh, the gospel and receive that gift of faith. Uh, so uh, that just hasn't happened for other people yet. It doesn't mean that it won't. And our job is to be his messengers, uh, to go out and proclaim this word. Don't be proud about it. Uh, share that, that uh, salvation that you've received. And the way to do that uh, is to help people to see their need. You know, the biggest barrier to unbelief is not the objections that people raise, uh, like, why does God allow evil? Uh, why does God allow children to suffer? I mean, these are, these are great questions, right? And we could talk about these questions for hours. Uh, but the, oftentimes, those questions are just an excuse that people put up as a front to say, I can't believe in God because these questions have not been resolved in my mind. Well, what's the, what's the problem? What's the sin there that's underlying that? The sin that's underlying that is pride. The biggest, biggest stumbling block to people not receiving their salvation is that they won't admit that they are sinners and that they need a savior. And that's why we have to preach the gospel. The gospel is so simple. Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died on a cross for our sins, and then he rose from the dead. And then we just pray that the Holy Spirit will regenerate hearts like he's regenerated ours so that they will hear the gospel and believe. Now, there's urgency to this. Sometimes we think, yeah, I'll talk to that person next week. I'll talk to that person for the following week. Uh, we have a weekly family Bible study call, which I've told you about. Uh, we do that on Zoom. And uh, we have family from Arizona. We have family from New Jersey. We have family from North Carolina on this call. And a couple weeks ago, uh, we heard a story from our family in Arizona. Uh, their neighbor, uh, who lives across the street, she has a sister who lives in the Houston area. The sister is married with a husband. They have three young children. Uh, one day, the husband came home. This is just a, about a month ago now. Uh, he shot his wife, and then he shot himself, both dead. And now these three kids are left to live on their own. They're going to be raised by their grandparents or something. So uh, for them, on that day, all day long ended on that particular day. Uh, from our family in New Jersey, we heard about uh, the principal of a school that our kids used to attend. Her husband went out to Utah for a ski trip, and he's skiing down the mountain, has a great day skiing, goes into the ski lodge at the end of the day, has a brain aneurysm at 52 years old, drops dead on the spot. And so my point in telling you this is not to shock you. I know they're shocking stories, but the point is to tell you that we don't know how much time we've had. We have, right? Nobody is promised tomorrow your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, none of them are promised tomorrow. By God's grace, we have received the gospel. We don't know when the time is going to run out for people, and we may be the agent of, of this grace that God has uh, appointed us. So we want to be sure that, that we are doing our part to spread this good news. God holds his arms out wide all day long, and he wants people to come to him. So we want to help people to see their need, to tell them about the love of Jesus who died for their sins, because we're only going to change the world by asking God to change one heart at a time. And we need to preach. We need to preach the word so nobody can say, I did not hear and I did not understand. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for this constant reminder of your mercy and your grace that you would stand there, God, that you would stand there 
eternal God begging us, imploring us to come to you and that we would have the audacity to reject you. Lord, I thank you that we understand that it's by grace and that we have heard the gospel and understood. And Lord, we do ask you for the souls of our friends and the souls of our families and neighbors and co-workers. Lord, our world is in a mess right now and it's because of unbelief and unbelief is because of pride and pride is a sin that you hate the most. Lord, help us to reach people with this amazing gospel. Lord, help us show your love to others. Uh, Send us, Lord, and help us to be effective agents in ministering to people, to a world that is so desperately in need of your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.